Let's face it, trying to find work today is tougher than ever. Between ghost listings and AI-powered applicant tracking systems, how do you know if your resume is even being seen by an actual human? That's why we've relaunched our job board to help you find your next opportunity. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse our current job listings. This week on the job board, Tiller is looking for a UX UI designer. Rejoy is looking for a senior UX designer. Sky Nova Inc. is looking for a UI UX visual designer. JLS Trading Co. is looking for a junior designer. Power Home Remodeling is looking for a Ruby on Rails developer. And lastly, Constructive is looking for a production designer. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more information on these listings and others. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. And if you're a company that's hiring right now, then we will feature your listing on our job board for 30 days and help spread the word about it to our audience of podcast listeners for just $99. Get started with us and expand your job search or recruiting efforts today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. Revision Path is supported by Brevity & Wit. Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They are always looking to expand their roster of freelance design consultants in the U.S., particularly brand strategists, copywriters, graphic designers, and web developers. If you know how to deliver excellent creative work reliably and enjoy the autonomy of a virtual-based freelance life with no non-competes, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. For 10 years, Revision Path has been dedicated to showcasing black designers and creatives from all over the world. In order to keep bringing you the content that you love, we need your support now more than ever. If you're in a position to help us grow, here's how you can contribute. Visit revisionpath.com forward slash donate and click the donate button there to make a one-time, monthly, or annual donation to help keep Revision Path running strong. Thanks for your support. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Christina Turner. Christina is an award-winning creative, art director, and brand strategist in Montgomery, Alabama, and she is the senior director of marketing and storytelling for the Jeremiah Project. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. I am Christina Turner. I like to say I'm a creative, but my at the heart, at the root of it, I really am a graphic designer. That's where I started. But I've kind of found my way into more than just graphic design. So I've been dabbling in marketing, event planning, all of the above. So yeah, that's what I've been doing. That's nice. me. Any plans for the summer? Like, how's this year been kind of treating you so far? This year has been good i'm already ready for a break <laughs> it's been six months now I'm like is it break time it's coming i'm actually going to san diego comic-con next month so oh nice I need to square away all of my plans for that 
actually on the spur of the moment yesterday or Sunday, I was like, should I do it? I was like, oh, I bought New York Comic Con tickets. So we'll see if I actually go. And that's in October. Okay. <laughs> you should do it. I've not been to one of those big cons like that, like New York or San Francisco, but oh, comic yeah. conventions in general are just a lot of fun. It is. And once you like, so I started going to like just small ones, like locally. And I was like, oh, that's fun. And then I was like venturing out and I think New York was my first big one. And I was like, oh, my God, like, this is a real one. Like, mm-hmm. you see the celebrities, you sit on the panels, you get to watch, like, sometimes episodes of a TV show before it premieres. Like, yeah, it's everything that I could ever want. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything, like, in particular that you want to try to, like, accomplish by the end of the year? Ooh, I want to have a blog. And I've kind of let it lay dormant for a while, but I want to like pick it back up and and kind of get it more into my regular routine and updating and writing more Mm -hmm. because I do enjoy like the writing. And and I've also been dabbling around going, should I start a YouTube channel? Because I feel like that's what everyone says these days. And I was like, maybe I should start a YouTube channel. So one of these things, if I don't get to the YouTube, I definitely want to just like be consistent with my blog. Yeah, I've been hearing a lot about sort of branching out and doing some kind of like video content, whether it's YouTube or TikTok. I don't know. As an old head, I'm not quite there yet. I realize the utility of it. Like people are just watching more stuff. They're consuming more, you know, video long or short form, but I'm not there yet. I'm almost right. there, but I'm not there yet. I don't blame you. I don't TikTok. Like I have a TikTok and I've posted a few because at one point I was like, well, I'm going to make a reel or two and then just repost it on TikTok. It's too much effort. Yeah. <laughs> It's a, it's a lot. I mean, it's a, it's a lot. One thing to kind of learn the tool itself, because everything is right there in the app. But then also you're subject to the whims of the algorithm. Yes. And I think it's yeah. that way with like all of social media, but particularly for video stuff, like you're really subject to algorithms on whether or not anybody even sees it. So it's exactly. It's a and lot. I think the thing is, it starts out as really fun. Like you do it. And then, like you said, you start thinking about the algorithm, like who's seeing it? You know, you get addicted to those lights and then it becomes not fun anymore because you're like, who am I making this for anymore? (laughs) Right, right. I have friends of mine that are creators and they definitely will, you know, they'll create something, they'll put it out there, but then they'll follow it up with saying like, please go and like it so the algorithm can blah, blah, blah. And it's like, are you doing it for your followers or you're doing it for this algorithm, this faceless program that may or may not push your stuff out to a bigger audience? Yeah, I honestly on my one of my Instagrams like for my blog, I just I haven't posted on the grid since December because I just literally got I was over it. I was like, why am I posting this? I'm just now starting to get back to a point where it's like, you know what? I need to just start posting for myself, like not for other people. If other people like it, that's cool. Mm -hmm. But I just need to start posting for myself. So that's where I'm getting back there. (laughs) I hear you. Let's talk about your work. You are the senior director of marketing and storytelling at Jeremiah program. Tell me about the organization and what you do. Yeah, so Jeremiah program, we're actually in our 25th year this year. What they do is it's it's based on or it started in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and what they did was they recognize the need for single mothers who need some help who want to finish their college degree. And so what the program does is provides a personalized coach to you to help you coach your way through college to help you finish that degree. If you have a child, we have a pre-K programs that they can go into as well. So it's a two-generational model. Like we want to be helping mom and child at the same time because there's just this cycle of poverty that we're trying to 
disrupt, basically, right? And so I know a lot of people will go like, oh, you don't need college degrees anymore, which in some cases it actually is very true. But what we found is that all the research done, college degree is still the lever that needs to be pulled to get up in the ranks to, you know, to start making more money. It hasn't been disproved as the way yet. You know, some people get lucky and there's influencers and all that stuff, but like, it's still the thing that is consistently, it still works. And so we encourage people who want to finish that degree. Like if you just need that help to just finish that degree, if you just need some of the campuses, we have nine campuses across the country. And so some mm-hmm. campuses have child development centers. So that's pre-K programs that they go to. Some of them even provide housing If housing's like a barrier. Like I can't get my housing and my childcare together. Then like, cool, we got you. And so like you focus on getting this because we don't want you to trade your dreams for something else, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's what JP does. And so in my role, I started working there a little year, over a year. It's been a year and a couple months. I actually started by working through a friend who was contract with them doing some design work. And he was like, I could use some help. And I was like, sure, I can do some extra freelance work. And so I started doing freelance work for about six months. And then I found out at the end of the year that they were looking to build their own in-house team. And I was like, mm. oh, God, cool. That sounds like a cool opportunity. I like the mission. And so I didn't know that it was you build the team <laughs> and do the work. And I was like, oh, okay. And literally like kind of building from scratch. So me and another person, we started, she's more of a content writer, editor. So we started together and we've built this team now to five people. And so we basically handle all the marketing, like social channels and website and that kind of stuff, like the main national stuff. We Mm -hmm. handle that. And then we also are assist campuses and anything that they need. And so we're also like our main charge at this point is getting people brand aligned because the brand has kind of been all over the place for many years. And so now it's like we need people to understand that JP is one organization no matter where they are. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at the website now. First of all, the website looks great. I mean, I don't know mm-hmm. how much of that you might have had a hand in or not, but it really looks good. And I love that it's an organization that's really about helping people. It's about helping families, helping mothers, helping single mothers. I'm reading through the commitment to social justice, where it says JP supports 100% women, 100% single moms experiencing poverty, and 100% parents in pursuit of a college degree, with 80% of those parents identifying as Black, Latinx, and Indigenous. Mm -hmm. That is, oh, I love that. That is so super important. Yeah, because I think a lot of people try to, you know, social justice is such like a word that people just like, they either love it or they don't. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, and right, it's like, ooh, social justice, I don't want anything. But I think the thing is what, what JP does is that they basically explain, like, you can't divorce one from the other. Like, it mm-hmm. is directly, like, this poverty issue is directly related to all these social justice issues. That's why they're in this situation. And so we don't run away from it, for sure. I'm curious, like, you know, you say you're having to sort of build the team and, and everything like that. Has that been sort of the hardest part about what you do is making sure that you've got this kind of unified team under one brand? My team right now is killer. I love my team. Yeah, we have about, we have five people, including me. So, you know, I have a designer on staff. I have a, a digital marketing person, digital strategist, um, someone who does like writing. And then our coordinator kind of keeps us all together. And so our hopes in the next year or two is, you know, grow a little bit bigger because uh, we're now like we started, easing our way into it but now we're taking on more and more work and so 
I've been lucky to come to a place that, you know, not everybody understands like branding and marketing design. And I'm lucky that I have a CEO who cares about that and mm-hmm. so and has invested the resources into getting it done. And so I'm so glad that's one of the things I've never had to explain, like, why is this important to my boss? Because she gets it. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, right now, everything is good for us. Now, is it a remote team or like, is there a like an office that you're reporting into? My team is fully remote, which is so strange to me. I've never been a fully remote person until last year. I think we, of 2020, a lot of people went remote and then they went remote part-time. But yeah, mm-hmm. this is uh, my first time being fully remote. And my team is fully remote. So we're not, we're all on the national team. And so we, yeah, we all are remote. If you, you know, live near a campus, then that could be your home base. But yeah, none of my team are by campus. So they're all remote. How's that been sort of building and managing that? You know, I was a little worried about being remote because I have been an in-person person for so long. But honestly, it's been pretty good because you all, I think the best part is I have a team that's really, very committed to getting the work done and putting out good work. So that's the first thing. Two, I used to be a person who hated daily meetings, <laughs> like those daily like check-in meetings or stand-up meetings, we used to call them. Mm-hmm. And I started doing those, like we do those almost every day. And if we don't have anything to talk about, we won't do it. But we do those every day. It's just like, let's start the day with each other just to like level set the day. It'd be like, okay, what do we got? Like making sure like we're on top, like, is there any questions, whatever. And it kind of helps ground us all in the day or what's happening. And then we go about our business the rest of the day. That has been the most helpful thing, I think, in managing a remote team. Now, along with your work with Jeremiah Program, uh, you're the regional director for AAF District 7, AAF standing for the American Advertising Federation. How did you first get involved with them? Oh, man, how anybody gets involved. They're like, oh, you the event planning? I want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so I was a part, I'm, I'm still a part, but I was part of my local chapter in Montgomery. The How I got involved was a coworker of mine was like, hey, they're looking for committee members to be on the American Advertising Awards committee. And I was like, oh, that big party they play in. I was like, oh, yeah, I want to do that. And I didn't end up going to the meeting. And she went and she came back and she said, well, not only do they want me to join the committee, they want me to be the chair. (laughs) And then I said, oh, okay, I can be on your committee. And then we let them know that I wanted to be on the committee. And then they were like, why don't you just be co-chairs? And somehow I found myself on the board. (laughs) (laughs) And so, yeah, we did that that first year. It was really cool. Like, it was just interesting and like seeing all the work regionally, like the stuff that people enter, having to like find judges and having to plan like this awards gala. Like, I learned a lot through the club through that. And then I think I did that for two years. And then I kind of just moved up and started doing other positions. I really love being education chair. And that was me just like connecting with all the local colleges and finding out who has design and marketing programs and like, how do we involve students? How do we help students? And that that was a really great year for that chair. And I moved up into a diversity chair at one point because I was like, no one's doing this. Like there's a diversity chair. It's like the chair there one skips. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like we, it's okay if we don't have this one. And so that year I was like, I'll do diversity. And I learned so much about what is AF doing on that ground. And then Eventually, I became president, which I didn't want, but it happened. (laughs) And it was good. It was great. Like, honestly, I was president two years in a row. It was probably one of the best experiences I've ever had. I made a lot of connections locally, but also, you know, around the South, 
also because we our district seven means Alabama, Georgia, Tennessee, part of Louisiana, Mississippi. So if you have a club and whatever, you know, all like you have this huge network in the South. Mm -hmm. I took a year, maybe like a year, year and a half, almost two years off because I was just a little burnt out. But they asked me on the district level, like, hey, would you mind wanting to join the district level? And I was like, why not? And so in my job in regional, I'm just um, kind of like the liaison between the district and the local level. So I get like assigned like maybe four or five clubs. I check in with them just make sure they're okay. If they have questions that they can't figure out, they, I try to help them. And it's just kind of like a, a go-between and help kind of guiding some clubs. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you really have taken on like a lot of leadership through them. Like you said, these different chair positions, now your regional director. Like how does AAF help you as a working creative? I will say that when I started AAF, I was just a designer, like at my job. My title was just designer. And like, you know, I was doing a lot of the the boring stuff, which, you know, like letters and that kind of stuff and mail. And so it was a good creative outlet for me of like, oh, I get to do some other stuff like event planning and creating graphics for these events and playing around on social and going, what works? What's getting people's attention and want them to come RSVP for an event? And even like finding speakers and booking speakers like Ooh, and me paying attention to who's out there, what names are out there, who's mm-hmm. giving good advice. And so I was doing all of this stuff. And at the time, like my boss was really like supportive of me being involved in the club. Like I took a lot of work time sometimes to do it in the middle of the day and or like would take off early to go do it. And one day he came to me and he was like, I see all this stuff that you're doing with AF and how you've grown the club. And it, it's great. Now I'm going to give you a promotion and then you're going to do all that same stuff here. and I was like oh and so like it's one of those things where it's like okay it did pay off for me at the end of the day like I was learning all this leadership skills and stuff off the job and then bringing it to the job Mm -hmm. I mean I think that's a a good thing that your job like recognized that you were doing this it didn't try to like step in or penalize if anything they were supportive of it Mm -hmm. very very supportive now, in the in the last episode, for folks that are listening, I was talking with Ashley Fletcher, and we had a, a pretty rousing conversation, I think, about the role of professional design organizations and how they should kind of be like more proactive on the voice of their members. We were specifically talking about AIGA, but we lumped in a couple of other orgs in there, too. AAF is not a design organization. Like you said, it's for advertising, but it sounds like there's some overlap there with design and that you would have maybe like visual designers or art directors, creative directors, stuff like Mm -hmm. that. I'm curious, like, is AAF like that? Like, it sounds like it's been a a pretty instrumental force in your career as an organization. Do you feel like they've really spoken up on like behalf of creative people of their members? For sure. AAF, I would say you're right. AAF is definitely all encompassing. Like, even though it says the word advertising, there's many things that go into advertising, right? You got to have a designer. You got to have a copywriter. Do you have video people like video? You got to have that. Like there are every spectrum of being a creative is involved in this club. You don't have to just be like the ad guy or whoever, you know, where it sounds like this is a madman. (laughs) (laughs) And so it covers the gamut. And so for, I would say AF, they definitely do speak up for the industry. They have a whole arm, like their whole thing 
they do a lot of things, but their main mission always is like the government relations part of it. Every two years, they do a day on the Hill. They get you to go speak to your representatives and talk about how we, you know, if you start like everyone's looking for money and it's if you start taxing advertising, this is what's going to happen. Or like they're constantly reminding people like don't like these are the things that we're pushing for. Mm-hmm. Right now, I just went to the national conference a couple weeks ago, and one of the big things they were talking about was the the data privacy issue, right? And how some states are even talking about creating their own laws, but what does it look like on a national level? Like they really get involved and really go to literally go to Congress and go, please look out for us. Mm. <laughs> like that is their their main part of what AAF does is like the lobbying and what's best for the industry because you don't want to kill the industry because it just employs so many different type of people. And so the minute you start taxing it, that's when things start going downhill. <laughs> yeah. They go to Congress? Yes. I did Day on the Hill. It's probably about four years ago. And every year I, we sent someone else this past spring. But yeah, we go up there. They have like a lawyer's group who does like the research and stuff. Like they fully prepped you mm-hmm. before going to talk to your representative. And if you don't actually, some if you're lucky, you get to actually talk to your representative. Uh-huh. Most times it's like their staffer person. But either way, you're fully prepped. You go in, like I get to like, talk about here's what how much revenue advertising brings into the state of Alabama. This is what happens if you tax it. This is how many people employs. This is how much, you know, all the good it does. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, we literally go into the go to D.C., into their office and like talk about this. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I'm, I am flabbergasted to hear i mean in the best way like yeah and i mean i'm saying i wish i'm not a member of aiga aiga i feel like i kind of has been like a a whipping post throughout this entire podcast that i've done right oh no 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 oh i will oh no that no 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 (laughs) so my involvement with aiga first of all i was very skeptical about joining AIGA because, and this is prior to me doing the podcast. So we, we have to go back to like 2013 and before I had wanted to join, but had been told explicitly by like chapter members, chapter leadership, like, Oh, well you didn't go to design school. And like, you have to be, you have to have a design degree to like be a part of AIGA. And so what? I didn't go to any events or anything like that. I was just like, whatever. And the, real? For real? This again, this was 10 plus years ago. So the thing that changed my mind about joining AIGA was I had Antoinette Carroll on the show. She's the Mm -hmm. the founder of Creative Reaction Lab. And actually, when I talked with her, this is prior to her starting Creative Reaction Lab. She was a co-chair of AIGA's Diversity and Inclusion Task Force. And like she was talking me into joining AIGA. She's like, you know, if you have these thoughts about the industry you should join you know try to be part of the solution and i was like you know what you've convinced me i'll do it and so i was on the diversity and inclusion task force for four years i think three or four years i think it was like from 2014 to it was three years 2014 to 2017 roughly about three to four years i was on that whole time and what i discovered was that and i don't know if it's this way with aaf but like what i discovered was that the organization only takes diversity serious if the person at the top, the executive director, if they take it seriously. Exactly. And so when I joined, 
Rick Graffay was the, I think, longtime executive director. He was on his way out and Julie Annixter was coming in as an executive director and she was all about diversity and inclusion. She would come down here to Atlanta. We would have dinner. Like she would be really like passionate about making sure that like people of color, particularly black designers in the organization were like getting recognized and being put in positions where they could like make a difference. The problem came when, how can I put this? <laughs> I, I think Julie had great intentions. I, I, you know, love Julie, still talk to Julie to this day, but I think other people in the organization were very much anti-diversity, but yet they were in positions influencing diversity. Yeah. So like we had this person, she wasn't the co-chair. She was like the liaison between headquarters and the task force, this woman. And she was very racist. And it's sort of like, why would you be racist in your over diversity organization? I right. don't know. But what I also discovered is that each chapter kind of functions independently in terms of what headquarters does or what national does. So while national may be all about diversity and inclusion, the Atlanta chapter still won't talk to me <laughs> or like the DC chapter is really cool. But then if I talk to like a chapter in, I'm just throwing one out there, not saying I've talked to this chapter, but like I talked to a chapter in like say Minneapolis or something, and then they're not cool. And so it's like, you would think that stuff that happens at national would trickle down through the chapters. Mm -hmm. And that's so not the case. And what I would tell people, like, you know, that folks on the show and they're like, well, should I join AIGA? I'm thinking about it. And I'm like, you know, AIGA is only as strong as its weakest chapter. So if you've had a bad experience at your chapter and you feel like that's precluding you from joining AIGA, I would completely understand that because that was my experience. Even when I had joined, and this is sort of the part that sort of got me is that, you know, prior to me being quote unquote known, Local chapter didn't want anything to do with me, wouldn't talk to me anything. That's now that crazy. I'm on the National Diversity and Inclusion Task Force and people know about Revision Path and stuff, then they're smiling in my face like, oh, oh, you should you should come and do this. You should, you know, want to do that. And then like we would try to do events together and then they wouldn't market the events. They were just, I don't know, they would say one thing, do something else. At one point, I was trying to be the chapter's VP of Diversity and Inclusion. Yeah. And they were like, well, you know, we, we thought about it, but like, you don't have a design degree. And like, what does mean not having a design degree after doing anything? Clearly, you see the advocacy work I'm doing in the community, the work that I'm doing, talking to black designers, the work I'm doing with national, but yet I didn't go to art school. So therefore, it's just not valid. And like, it came to the point where I kind of really had to tell them, like, keep my name out your mouth. Yeah. Don't, don't talk to me. Don't put my name in conversation with anybody. As far as I'm concerned, you and I are persona non grata. Do not speak to me. Um, Dang. I haven't been an AIGA member since 2017. I still talk with leadership. Like they recently had their first black executive director, Benny F. Johnson. He and I are really close. So I was there throughout his tenure, just kind of talking with him, seeing how the organization changed. But he just left at the beginning of this year. So I don't know what... AIGA does. I don't really care what they do, but like I think about in terms of, you know, a lot of black designers, particularly because I'm thinking about it through the focus of this show, really found community over the pandemic by joining other events or joining other, you know, sorts of groups that had sprung up, like the Hue Design Summit or Where Are the Black Designers or something like that. And now, you know, like a few years out, they've kind of 
died away. Not died away. That's not the best way to put it. They're not as active, I think, as they used to be. And so I still get some designers that are like, well, they want to find community. They're trying to find it. And they look at AIGA and they're just like, "Uh, is (laughs) is this like the only game in town? Because this is not it for us as designers. Because there's other issues with AIGA just in terms of there was a time when they didn't recognize UX designers as designers. I still don't think they're a very proactive organization at all. Like AIG ain't going to Congress. That ain't happening. Right. <laughs> they I are, that, they are not yeah. doing that. I think AAF, I wouldn't say they're perfect, like by any means. I would mm-hmm. say that it's very similar in how each chapter kind of does its own thing. And you just hope that national stuff would trickle down into them. I think it's always dependent on where that chapter is. Or also, do you have people on your board who's going to hold them accountable to those things, right? Like, I was diversity chair one year, and that's probably the most, like, I was probably the only Black person for a very long time on our board. And then as soon as I became president, I was like, where's the Black people? We bringing them. (laughs) And so I would go, and I would literally go out to places, like, we have an HBCU here, and so... I would approach them. I was like, do y'all have like design or any kind of program? And they were like, yeah, we do. And I got them to enter our awards. It was the first year they'd enter and they won so many awards and like the joy on their face was so awesome. Right. And so I was like, it depends on the people in the chapter, if they're willing to go out and go do something about it. I don't know. I guess the national can't really hold everyone accountable. Like I think they try to, but I don't see them going to every chapter and going, are you doing this? Are you doing that? Like there's certain things they have to do, but in terms of diversity and stuff, I think it's really on who's there. Yeah, I see that. I mean, it's sort of the same way. Like I said, you know, if I didn't see Antoinette doing what she was doing with the task force and getting me on board with sort of the message, I wouldn't have joined. So seeing someone that looks like you, that's kind of in that position, helping to influence stuff like really does help. Mm hmm. But it also sounds like for you, AAF has been just a positive force. I mean, it's helped you out throughout your career. You've worked in these different leadership positions. Like, would you say that AAF has really been instrumental in kind of getting you to where you are today? I would say yes, very much, 100%. I think a lot of things that, you know, it's like a continuous learning thing. Like when I wasn't going to a conference that work was paying for, I was going to these club conferences and like, learning all these different things. Like I couldn't tell you anything about data privacy before I went to any of the stuff or like <laughs> things outside of like a normal designer would know because the more that you know and have in your tool belt, the more valuable you are, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's like, I can speak on a lot of things that I never probably would have spoke on before, before joining AF. Mm. Now, I want to switch gears here a little bit. I don't want to just talk about design organizations and stuff. <laughs> As I told you before we started recording, it's just rare to find another designer from like the same area where I grew up in. So I really want to learn more about you, about growing up in Montgomery and everything. Tell me about that. As a designer, I will say that growing up in Montgomery, it was fine. But I also was in the majority who was like, as soon as I get a chance, I'm out. (laughs) (laughs) I'm out. I'm going out. I don't know where it is, but I'm out. And so... I thought I was like trying to, you know, until the reality of how much college costs hit me in the face. I was like, oh, well, I guess I'm going to school at AUM, which is local, all mm-hmm. the University of Montgomery. <laughs> I was like, okay, I'll go there. They have a design program. Went there. 
And then, you know, towards the end when I was getting ready to graduate, I was really like in this whole, I got to get an internship. Like I got to get something to get a Mm -hmm. job because no job will hire you without some sort of experience. Right. And so I ended up getting an internship at, I think it was called Southern Progress Corporation at the time, but it was, it was basically Tommy had owned Southern Living Magazine and Coastal Living Magazine and all these like Southern magazines at the time. And it was in Birmingham. So I moved to Birmingham up there for that. And I was like, I'm going to stay in Birmingham. Birmingham's like an hour and a half away from Montgomery mm-hmm. and like the nearest biggest city probably. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to Birmingham. We'll see what happens. And then it was 2008, also known as the recession. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and no jobs were to be had because as I don't know if people know, like creative jobs are the first to go. And so there were no jobs. I was interviewing for jobs left and right. Like it, was just like a kind of depressing time and so at that time I had to put it down I had to just like okay I'm gonna apply for the job wherever it is mm-hmm. and I ended up applying for a job in Montgomery and I was like oh, I want to go back to Montgomery <laughs> and I went back <laughs> and applied for the job they said yes I was like oh, I could save money move back home save money I took this job and that's how I ended up back in Montgomery and so I think for a while I took it as a temporary pit stop but I never would have thought that I would still be here mm-hmm. until I started like so uh, until I started kind of realizing like what does design mean right like not just I think a lot of people when they get out they kind of just go I'm gonna work at this huge agency or whatever and there's no agencies in Montgomery like for real there's like a couple mm-hmm. <laughs> that means everyone's competing for those same jobs and so when I, I worked at this place called um, Hay Furs, which is funny. It's a fur store in the South. <laughs> and yeah, I was like, this is okay. And you don't get so that cold it, down here, down there for furs. It doesn't. It might, <laughs> like, you've got a good 10 day window of cold that you can wear that fur and mm-hmm. they going to do it. And so they're, and they're all in the Southeast. Like there were stores all in the Southeast. And so they wanted an in-house designer and I, I applied for the job and I got it. And so, I did that for a little over four and a half years. And so what I learned at that job was like, I think we think of the glamorous part of like being a designer when we're out of school. We're like, oh, we're just going to design all these cool things and stuff. And it's like, no, you're going to probably do some boring stuff for a while. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it was like retail design work, like retail marketing. That's what I was doing. And so I'm learning like all of this stuff that like, why didn't I learn this in school? Like the real stuff, right? It is like how like back then newspapers were still a thing. So then it was like I was doing a lot of newspaper ad design. I was doing like having to design mostly in black and white a lot of times was like had to like I was a learning curve for me for a while. And then we had at the time they had a partnership with Belk. So sometimes they had like little salons inside of Belk stores. So then it was partnering with Belk and making sure I'm adhering to Belk's design standards, right? And like, I'm also learning like how to place radio ads. I'm writing scripts for ads on TV and like Mm -hmm. radio and how do you even place an ad on TV? Like all these little things that you need to know how to even run like some sort of design marketing kind of startup. I'm learning from this job that's like in Montgomery, Alabama. (laughs) (laughs) And so, yeah, it's just like all this, like, and like we had to read it on a website. And it was like, how do you even go about that? I had no idea. And I figured it out because at the time, I think we were saying, I was, I remember I kept pushing. I was like, hey, we really need to get, I think web is where we need to go. People Mm -hmm. aren't shopping in stores anymore. And I want to say they primarily, a lot of their businesses were online now. And so, yeah, it's like, I'm learning all these things 
that are outside of design because they don't tell you. You need to know more about stuff other than just design. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I'm learning all of these things. I stayed there a little over four and a half years. And then a job at Southern Poverty Law Center came up and I had interviewed with them right out of college. And clearly, I was rejected from that. But <laughs> I interviewed again with them and I got the job because of all this stuff that I had learned at this small shop. Yeah. They were like, oh, you know how to do this? And we're also talking about redesign a website and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, I've been doing all this scrappy work. And so that's what sold me to get this job at Southern Poverty Law Center. And that job, I love that job. And I did it for 10 years. It was interesting. I don't think I've ever been in an in-house of that caliber before. I think Southern Living was kind of almost a little, it gave you a little bit of in-house feel. But I was on the advertising side and when I was an intern. So it was like those ads in the back of the magazine that no one looks at. (laughs) (laughs) Like, that's the stuff I was doing. I wasn't doing the pretty editorial work. And so at Southern Poverty Law Center, we had a full in-house team. Nothing in the organization got done and it had to come through us, the creative Mm -hmm. team. That was video work. That was any ads, like everything. If it was going to be public facing, it had to be touched by our team. And so we were a full like shop. I always wanted to work in nonprofit because like just being in the retail life, that's just, what is this for? <laughs> you start mm-hmm. questioning your life. You're like, why am I doing this? It was at a nonprofit, which was even better. And yeah, it was just a good experience. I did that for like, yeah, about 10 years. And so that's why I ended up staying because I had this job that was paying me well. It was in Montgomery. It was like mission driven. I was like, oh, why do I need to leave? This is great. Yeah. <laughs> I want to go back to, I mean, You've covered a lot of ground, but I want to go back to just like, I guess, well, I guess this is sort of full circle now that I think about it. You know, growing up in Montgomery, like you said, you left, you you came back, you stayed in Alabama, you stayed in Montgomery and built your career there. Why is it important for you to like stay there as opposed to say like, oh, I'm going to, you know, maybe move to Atlanta or to New York or like somewhere where there might be bigger opportunities? Is there more about staying in Montgomery than just the job opportunity? Yeah, I would say definitely not a martyr for staying in Montgomery. I would say that my number one would be cost of living. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Cost of living is just compared to other places. I'm okay here. But then, you know, if I take cost of living and stuff out of it, I would say that, especially when I was doing stuff with AAF and like engaging with all these like designers and stuff in college and just talking to them and like, what do you want to do? And I would just always tell them like, hey, design is everywhere that you can think of it could possibly be. I don't think people even realize like in-house was like a thing, right? And so I think for me, it's almost proven like you can have a good career and still be in Montgomery. It doesn't matter. Like I think everyone's thoughts of what they think they should be doing, Mm -hmm. you can do it for Montgomery. I think, but the problem is it's not as out there, right? You have to find the opportunities. They're not just out there going, here's all these great opportunities, right? You have to find the opportunities in Montgomery. And I think that's the difference between going somewhere to like a larger city or like Atlanta or something, right? Like you see opportunities galore, but that you have to find them here. Mm-hmm. And I think Montgomery also has just been, they've been having kind of like almost like a little bit of a renaissance in the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. of just trying to build it up and mm-hmm. and trying to get people encourage them to stay particularly this creative community that like we have a huge arts community that has, has blown up in the last few years i just think like 
there are people here who now are like, it's not just one or two. There's a lot of people who are just advocating for people to see us, like see Montgomery mm-hmm. and just, hey, there's stuff here. You just have to find it. You can't, it, it's not going to come to you. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I, I grew up in Selma. Selma is 50 miles away from Montgomery. And mm-hmm. just growing up, Montgomery was always the destination because Selma didn't have right. the things Montgomery had. Like Selma was almost like a like an extended suburb in a way because like we didn't have a movie theater. So if you wanted to go to the movies, you had to drive up 80, go to Carmike Cinemas 8. If you wanted Dang. to go to a mall, we kind of, I mean, Selma kind of had a mall, but it wasn't the Montgomery mall. Like it yeah. wasn't, it wasn't <laughs> that. If you wanted to see a play or something, there's no, I mean, maybe there might be something at Walton Theater, but it's like fifth graders or whatever. If you wanted to see like Shakespeare, there's mm-hmm. Alabama Shakespeare Festival, which mm-hmm. I mean, when I first saw Alabama Shakespeare Festival as a kid, I was blown away. I, I think I, I mentioned this before we recorded, like it was the first time I felt immersed in a mm-hmm. fully designed space. I'm like, this yeah. is like a theater. And then, of course, I learned like it's one of the, I think, 10 Shakespeare festivals in the world. And I'm like, why would there be one in Alabama? But like, I don't it's think I so, knew that. It's so beautiful with the water. And I remember going to see plays there. Like we would have field trips there all the time. And even then when I was in marching band, like there's no music shop in Alabama. We had to go to arts on mm. East Boulevard. We oh had my to, God. <laughs> we had to go up there <laughs> to get me mouthpieces and slide oil and stuff like that. So like Montgomery to me was always like the destination in a way because there was just art and culture and museums and shows and like y'all have uh, like we didn't have a television station in selma everything comes from montgomery wsfa all that sort of stuff you know so hot 105 the radio (laughs) station like all of that was just montgomery was the destination and so it's interesting to for you to talk about how it's coming up in this renaissance because of course there's there's like a the civil rights museum not a civil rights museum it's a, a justice museum there yeah, the um the EJI Equal Justice Initiative. Yeah, museum. yeah, yeah. That the museum PC, is yeah, there. Yeah, I know yeah. that there's been a lot of activity around trying to build up that Selma to Montgomery corridor. Mm-hmm. Like I know, especially in Lowndes County, like they have an interpretive center. They're trying to like build all that right. stuff up and everything. Montgomery to me has just always been the destination. Like I bought my first video game in Montgomery. I went to my first like big mall in Montgomery. Saw my first theater like theater show, but also movie theater in Montgomery. So, I mean, to me, Montgomery was like it. I mean, Birmingham was, of course, the big, big city. Yeah. But like in Selma, it was like Montgomery's just like right there, you know? That's interesting to hear that perspective as someone who has been from, like, I'm from Montgomery. And so it's a lot of people here like, oh, we're too small. Like nothing happens here. But then to hear you from someone from <laughs> Selma going, everything was in Montgomery. I was like, everything was in. Need, you probably need to give that talk to some other people that live here. Listen, <laughs> we didn't have a bookstore. So like when oh. I was trying to learn, I mean, we had a library. So I mean, a library is yeah. not a bookstore, but the only kind of books we bought was whatever might be in Walmart. And that's like what romance novels or, <laughs> or something like that. Yeah scholastic book fair Mm -hmm. and the library like there wasn't a bookstore whereas you go to montgomery there's a books a million yeah and you can go or and walden books was there when i started learning how to code i was you know this was like mid 90s or something like that like there were a couple of books out and stuff and the library didn't have anything 
And I remember going on a field trip and going to, uh, I think it was a Walden Books. It was, it was either a Walden Books or a Books a Million to like get my first computer book. Yeah. We used to have a Barnes and Noble. It probably was that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious, what, what high school did you go to? Robert E. Lee. <laughs> okay. All right. I mean, Selma only had Selma High School. I mean, we had, there's Dallas County High School, but that's different that's the county high school yeah, that's not the city a, high school we had like we have a ton of high schools where does that oh yeah y'all got we, Ro- yeah, yeah. robert e. Lee, and mostly named after confederate folks confederate like- people <laughs> exactly like back then i wasn't too hard about it and i was like yeah lee that's where i go and now it's like oh yeah there was lee, lee there was jeff <laughs> jeff davis uh, yeah, yeah. Jeff Davis. Yeah, it was. It's a lot. Like they're planning on renaming the schools, so yeah. um, that's going to be interesting. <laughs> yeah, we had Selma High School, and that was just in the city. So, like, we had city high schools and county high schools. They were rivals of some sort. So, like, in the city, there was only Selma City. Like Selma High School was like the the city high school, and then mm. outside in the county, you had Keith High School. You had Southside. And you had Dallas County High School. But then you also had, I guess you could call this like the, honestly, what we called it growing up was the white school, which was nah. Morgan Academy. And it was a private, I guess, private-ish school. But then that was named after a Klansman. That's named after John T. Morgan. So, like, we just didn't fool with them. Yeah. Never the twain shall meet. Like, I think Selma's main rival was Southside because it was just like, you know, city versus county that kind of thing but yeah yeah no i remember i've marched at the stadiums in uh crampton bowl crampton bowl crampton bowl i've been there i've been to the turkey day classic all of that all of that you're bringing it all back (laughs) yeah i've I've been there absolutely so it's great to hear that montgomery is kind of having this renaissance like tell me more about the the creative community there man so Definitely not me, but it's spearheaded by a few other groups that have really more of the fine arts community. I have been so impressed. It started with maybe like throwing a couple of murals up and now like we've got a ton of murals up in in the city. And then they kind of have like these kind of like arts groups who was just there's one group, King's Canvas, that I really love. Love Kevin King. He created it. His group is like mainly on the West Side. And where people don't, you know, like art, well, that's not a thing that people think about. But mm-hmm. he's been really advocating for creative placemaking, meaning like if you bring community and culture can be created if you bring arts into it. And so he's like been really doing a lot for the city. There's another group called 21 Dreams. They've also been doing a lot. And so like it's just been a really like good time if you're like a fine artist. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say design, too, because a lot of designers are also, you know, they do fine art, but they also are mixed up in that as well. And so, like, it's a good time to be a creative in the city if yeah. you just like, get involved. And like you said, there's, you know, the schools that also have design programs like you went to AUM, but then also like Alabama State is in yep. Montgomery, you know. Mm-hmm. So you've got at least colleges that also have these these programs too like you were part of the aiga student chapter at aum right yeah we started a student chapter i don't i'm pretty sure that didn't last but (laughs) we had started a student chapter because there wasn't one and the nearest aiga chapter to us was in birmingham and so Mm -hmm. yeah we started one because you know we were like we want to be a part of a design association and at the time i think when i i had remember hearing about af but i was like i'm a designer i need to be a design thing (laughs) (laughs) 
Design things is what I need to be. And so I right. think we did a little bit with it, but I really don't remember a lot of the time, like what we did. I don't think we did very much mm-hmm. other than start the chapter. And so, yeah, I think there's just, there's opportunity wherever you can go. Like we even have like two-year colleges and stuff. Like we have a, a one of those who has like a design program. Like it's everywhere. Yeah. When you sort of look back at the span of your career, like from, you know, even like your time at AUM to Hennig to Southern Poverty Law Center to now with like Jeremiah program, how would you say you've evolved as a creative over the years? Ooh, I would say that I definitely, for me, I love doing design. Like I still like doing it, but I think I've definitely fallen more into creative leadership. I just love kind of like that art direction kind of stuff. And so I've also, you know, kind of realized like there are people who are better than me and I'm okay with that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. Like I'm okay with getting the best people who know how to do the job, but I still have that eye for direction of where we should go and stuff. And so I've fallen more into creative leadership over the years and managing like designers and, and other creative people. I really have enjoyed that part of where my career has gotten to. And I would like to keep doing more of just like creative leadership. I don't know, maybe far down the road teaching, <laughs> maybe. But mm-hmm. I just feel like, because I just feel like, at least when I remember in my college, I feel like they're just not teaching you what you need to know when you get out. You know, like the basics, mm-hmm. but it's like, I need some real life application here. And you don't feel like that's like being taught? At least when I was in school, it could have improved. I mean, the program's been around for a while now and it could have improved. Yeah, I just feel like when I was in school, I was having to do a lot of things on, on the side on my own to try to figure it out. And I and we had like a teacher retire in the middle of my year also. And so like we had a new professor came in who was just she just came from an agency. And so we were when she came in, I, w- I will say we saw more practical application type projects we started doing that kind of stuff and so i don't know maybe i feel like i was like slighted because she didn't come in until like toward the end of my year (laughs) Mm -hmm. so i'm sure she's still there and a great friend of mine and i will say that she probably brought a lot to the students after me for real but when i was in it was like still a lot of old school teaching and so not to say there's anything wrong with it, but it was like I needed to needed it to evolve with where time was going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something, you know, with I think a lot of design curriculums, like you can teach the basics, of course, you can teach theory and composition and all that sort of mm-hmm. stuff. But like so much of design now, I think, is wrapped in tech in some way, whether that's product or UX or or some yeah. like digital form like it's hard to be, I think, just a visual designer, maybe, because mm-hmm. the expectation is that something you do has to be tied to a tech, you know, part, something with technology. And I don't think that's what's being really taught is, yeah. you know, they'll teach you the basics and then you're kind of on your own once you get out there. Yeah, I would really appreciate now a class where they teach you Canva. Because <laughs> I was like, everybody's like, Canva's going to take your job. No, Canva's not going to take my job, but Canva has a place in the world. And it's like now, like, I, you know, I'm definitely one of those designers that's like, oh, turn my nose up at it. But I'm like, no, it has a place in the world and we yeah. all need to adapt to it, unfortunately. <laughs> now, outside of work, I see you, you love 
Disney and Marvel and all that kind of, you know, like comic slash geek culture stuff. Do you really like ever have an opportunity to combine that with your everyday work? That's funny. I try to, anytime I give a presentation, I like to let people know (laughs) that that's what I'm into. Like if it's a presentation on something slightly boring, I always intro with, Hey, and it's usually like a picture of me at like, um, Avengers campus at Disneyland or like, (laughs) it's just like, Hey, I I just need you to know a couple of things about me off the top. Number one, I'm a blurred. If you don't know what that is, that's a black nerd. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I like kind of break the ice conversations and like I try to introduce it that way. I also would say that part of me starting like a blog and stuff too was me trying to incorporate my love of like design and, you know, building websites and stuff like that into trying to marry the two and like my love of like talking about it. I try to pour a lot of that into that, you know, if I don't get to do it through work or they know that I'm good for theming something, even if it's just like a quick Zoom meeting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They know I'm good for theming something that's going to be very nerd culture related. So I try to throw it in there as like a personality thing. But no, we're not we're not up there making Marvel movies at work. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I I know with like you said, with Jeremiah Project, like the work has to do with family. So I didn't know if maybe like you're able to kind of introduce some more family friendly like Marvel or or, you know, Disney. I mean, Disney is family friendly, of course, but like any sort of way to sort of incorporate those two. I was just curious about that. No, no, we keep it fresh. <laughs> <laughs> what advice would you give out there to someone like they're, they're hearing your story they're they're hearing about your career and they want to follow in your footsteps. Like, what would you tell them? Oh man, I would say that opportunities won't come to you. You have to go find them and you have to do the work to go find them. Like I can tell you, I've spent, Many a time, you know, even before, like out of college, leaving like a little bit after, like just finding opportunities and sometimes just even like creating them, even when there's not there, because sometimes you creating stuff on your own will get you noticed. I think you have to find the opportunities. You can't just expect them to come to you. It's work being a creative, right? It takes a minute to get you, unless you're just really, really good, it takes a minute for people to put that trust in you to hire you as a creative person, right? And so I also think being a creative is more than just your ability to make something look good on the screen. Mm -hmm. I think also too that some of that leadership and communication style also is a big part of being a creative. Like if you can't talk about your work, if you can't defend your work, if you can't also take critique and criticism, like that communication is very important. And sometimes like even that part They'll see that before they'll see like your actual work that you're doing. So I just think that it's ultimately you have to do the work. (laughs) What do you want the next chapter of your story to be like? I feel like you've accomplished a lot so far in your career. And, you know, especially now you're at this this new nonprofit. Like, what do you want the next chapter of your story to be like? What kind of work do you want to do? I would say... Career-wise, I can't think of anything else that I would want to be doing other than teaching at some point. I think Mm -hmm. I like connecting with students and like, you know, right when they like life hasn't slapped them in the face yet. (laughs) So all their (laughs) ideas are like fresh and new and you're like, yes, energize me with your energy. I would like to think I would like to eventually go that route. I think all, but personally though, I think I just want to push myself a little bit more to like learn things that, you know, I'm still not like 
I at one point was like, I should learn UX. And then I quickly gave up on it. But <laughs> like, I think, uh, I think I just want to explore, like I'm getting more into video editing. I haven't, like I've done a little bit and like I'm getting a little bit more into that and just trying to like add things to my tool belt to, mm-hmm. to kind of keep me going. Because I, I think most people, if you're a creative, you know, like you can't just stop at what you learned one time. <laughs> right. No, that's very true. It's very true. Just to kind of wrap things up here, I mean, we've talked about so much stuff, but where can people find out more information about you, about your work? Where can they find that online? You can find me on my website. It's ohheyitsmekt.com. That's also my Instagram and Twitter handle. Yeah, that's where I'm at. All right. Sounds good. Well, Christina Turner, I want to thank you so, so much for coming on the show. Like I said earlier, it's just been so rare for me to find another designer that's like right from around the area where I grew up. So I applaud you so much for being such a badass working creative in Montgomery. And I mean, I don't mean that just because of like, you know, Montgomery being a a smaller city, but like the next generation. And I would say even the current generation of like designers, creatives and stuff, people need to see that. They really need to see that because, I mean, I, I think about myself growing up. I didn't know anything about design. I mean, I liked to draw. I couldn't really draw, but, like, I did a lot of stuff with magazines and, like, I, I worked on my school's newspaper and, like, yearbook and stuff. And, like, this was at a time when computers were just starting to become a thing. We're talking, like, mid to late 90s. I graduated high school in 99. And so there were no sorts of examples for me to see of like, oh, this is a working person doing creative stuff. Like I had to, I had to leave to find it, to see it somewhere else. And so I think it's super important that, you know, what you're doing, you're kind of being the symbol in a way, you know, maybe inadvertently, but you're being the symbol for others to see that like, yeah, you can be here in Montgomery and like live a fun, fulfilled, creative life doing work that you love. And like, that is so inspirational to me. I know it's got to be inspirational to other people. And again, I just want to thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. I appreciate it. No, thank you for geeking out about Montgomery with me. (laughs) (laughs) Big, big thanks to Christina Turner. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Christina and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is supported by Brevity & Wit. Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They are always looking to expand their roster of freelance design consultants in the U.S., particularly brand strategists, copywriters, graphic designers, and web developers. If you know how to deliver excellent creative work reliably and enjoy the autonomy of a virtual-based freelance life with no non-competes, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio located in Atlanta, Georgia. Our executive producer is Maurice Cherry, and our editor and audio engineer is RJ Basilio. Intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Transcripts are courtesy of Brevity and Wit. If you liked this episode, then please let us know. We're on Instagram and we're on Twitter. Just search for Revision Path, all one word. Or you could follow us on Spotify, on Amazon Music, 
or you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. We even have a voicemail hotline that you can call if you want to leave a voice message. That number is 626-603-0310. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.